And now for the lesson of the day, I'm going to read again from 1 Timothy chapter 6. I will pick up in verse 17. Here again, the word of God. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would form and shape and mold us into the image of Christ Jesus. We know that this is the goal of our whole salvation. We thank you for forgiving us of our sins. We thank you for delivering us from sin. May you work these things in us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to take you back to just over a hundred years ago. In 1916, John D. Rockefeller became America's first billionaire. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to go back and live in 1916 if it meant you could have Rockefeller's money? If you could be as rich as Rockefeller in 1916, would you be willing to live in 1916? To give up your life today, because I know none of you are billionaires, and to go back to 1916 and live with Rockefeller, Rockefeller's billionaire bank account. Think about this with me. If you had Rockefeller's wealth in 1916, it would mean you'd have a very nice home on Fifth Avenue in New York City and another home in California overlooking the Pacific. Of course, if you wanted to travel between those two homes, it would take you several days on an unair-conditioned railroad car. Uh, in fact, almost no public place that you would be in would have air conditioning. Uh, with all your money in 1916, you'd be able to buy all the latest technology, but by today's standards, that wouldn't uh, amount to very much. There was no commercial radio. No, uh, There were record players, but they weren't very good. Of course, there was no TV, uh, no Wi-Fi because no Internet, uh, no smartphones, no computers. Uh, you could write a letter and drop it in the mail, but it would take weeks or perhaps even months to reach its destination. You could make a phone call through an operator, uh, but uh, otherwise communications with people in other places would be very limited. Certainly there was no Skype or Facebook to keep in touch with people in other places. You'd have a car, even a limousine, uh, driven by a chauffeur, but it would be very slow, very uncomfortable, and very unreliable. If you got sick... All your money would not buy you very much in the way of medical care by today's standards. In 1916, there were no antibiotics, uh, no Advil for a headache. Uh, surgical practices were dangerous, and if you did survive the operation, you might not survive the infection uh, that might come afterwards. In fact, just to give you an example of this, a few years later, in 1924, President Calvin Coolidge's 16-year-old son was playing tennis on the White House grounds and got a blister on his foot and ended up dying from the infection. Think about that. Just a hundred years ago, uh, even the president's son was vulnerable to die from a blister on his foot uh, by an infection. If you got a toothache in 1916, well, good luck with that. Uh, there's not a whole lot that could be done. You're probably going to end up with dentures anyway, uh, and the dentures would be worse than what you would get at a drugstore today. 
Globalization had not yet happened. And so even with all your money, your choices at the grocery store or when it comes to restaurants would be extremely limited. Of course, your entertainment options would be limited, too. There's no Netflix, uh, just black and white silent movies, uh, no Amazon to deliver whatever you might want. In a couple of days, you cannot download or stream music. And in fact, the only styles of music you'd probably even be familiar with would be classical and jazz. Oh, you might still think it'd be great to have all that money, to be a billionaire. Surely my life would still be amazing in 1916 with all that money. And certainly in various ways it would be amazing. But your life would also likely be a lot shorter. Because in 1916 the average lifespan was just over 50 years compared to almost 80 years today. So even with all that great wealth, you most likely would not get to enjoy it as long. And in 1916, one out of ten babies died in their first year of life, compared to one in 168 babies dying in their first year of life today. So there would be no guarantees you'd get to enjoy all of that wealth with your children. And for the average non-billionaire person a hundred years ago, things were even uh, much, much, much worse. In 1916, most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, did not finish high school. Two-thirds of homes did not have electricity. Uh, Only a tiny minority of people even owned homes of their own. Uh, The great majority of people worked dangerous, difficult, and dirty jobs, usually in factories. However you look at it, if you look at the standard quality of life by any normal economic measure, life in America a hundred years ago was vastly inferior to life today, no matter how much money you have. And so the point is this. By historical standards, all of us are fabulously wealthy. Even a lower middle class American today lives a life full of conveniences and comforts and opportunities that a billionaire just 100 years ago would not even be able to imagine. All of us live lives that are cleaner, healthier, and richer than the wealthiest man in the world did just 100 years ago. I would not give up my life today uh, to go back to 1916, even if you gave me a billion dollars. It's just not worth it. Life today is so much better, so much richer in America. You find the same kind of thing if you look at our standard of life here in America compared to the rest of the world globally. By global standards, even America's poor are quite, quite rich today. Uh, today, if you have clean clothes, if you have a roof over your head, if you get a couple meals a day, you have more than 75% of the world's population in 2018. And if you've got a bathroom inside your house, a refrigerator with food, a closet for your clothes, then you're really in the global upper crust. And even more so if you have a bank account and a car, then you're really in the world's elite when it comes to wealth. Who are the rich? Seems very relative. Most of us don't feel rich because all of us know people who have more. But the fact is, we are rich. We are the rich. And if someone from the Sudan or from Afghanistan heard you say you weren't rich, they would probably laugh at you because globally speaking, you are incredibly wealthy. Uh, I remember a pastor telling a story of uh, going to Africa 
I don't remember which country it was, but it was certainly uh, what we would consider a third world country. And he was visiting with these African Christians. And the African pastor said to the American pastor, we pray for you Christians in America all the time. And the American pastor said, what could you possibly pray for us for? And the African pastor said, we know it must be incredibly difficult to stay faithful when surrounded by such prosperity. And indeed, that is true. How can you possibly stay content when you live just a short distance from a shopping mall? How can you possibly be content if you've got an Amazon account with millions upon millions of products at your fingertips? No matter how hard you think you have it, you are incredibly rich. No matter how poor you think of yourself, you are incredibly rich in modern-day America. And I think one thing that we should remember is no matter how hard we think we have it, we should remember that there are millions of people in the world getting by on far, far less than we have, and they're often content with far less than we have. Because we live in a culture that teaches us to be discontent. We live in a culture that teaches us to count our unfulfilled desires more than we count our blessings. We focus more on unmet desires than we do our unmet obligations, our unmet duties. The success of others so often in our culture is a grievance to us rather than a source of inspiration. And this is because we live in a culture of envy. This is why Americans generally, if you ask them, don't feel very rich. It's because we're so full of envy towards those who have more. No one feels rich because we're envious of those who have more than we do. We feel poor even though we're not. It's so uh, easy for us to forget how good we have it. The truth is, by almost any standard, historically or by almost any standard globally, we are incredibly rich. And so those things that the Scripture says to the rich, it says to us. We need to pay especially close attention to what Scripture says about money and possessions because we are surrounded by them. But I will also say we need to pay attention to the things that Scripture says to those who want to be rich, those who don't think of themselves as rich, but who want to be rich. Those things apply to us as well because most of us don't feel very rich. And so we don't feel bad about wanting greater riches than what we currently have. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, there are two sections that deal with wealth. And we read both of them this morning. In verses 3 through 10, Paul gives instructions to those who desire to be rich. And then in verses 17 through 19, Paul gives instructions to those who are already rich. And I would say both sections apply to us. To those who want to be rich, Paul commands contentment. To those who are rich, Paul commands generosity. And so these are the two things we want to look at this morning. Let's start with verses 3 through 10. Here, Paul is taking on false teachers, false teachers who apparently taught that religion could be used as a means to monetary gain. These false teachers were commercializing religion. And this is a really easy thing for false teachers to do. Uh, False teachers can prey upon desperate and discontented people. Discontented people all too often see money as their ticket out, their ticket to happiness. And false, so false teachers will appeal to that desire 
in some way. We see the same kind of thing going on uh, with today's prosperity gospel teachers. They're uh, false teachers today. Uh, prosperity gospel teachers who peddle a form of godliness as a means of financial gain. And so they'll say, if you have faith, you can name it and claim it. And if you don't get what you ask for, obviously it's a failure of your faith. They say God wants you healthy and wealthy at all times. And so if you aren't prospering, it's because you lack faith. And of course, all too often they'll say, if you'll just send me some money, then you'll get this blessing that you're seeking. For Paul, the Christian life does not work that way. For Paul, there is no prosperity gospel. Because for Paul, the Christian life is a life that includes suffering and sacrifice. It's a life shaped by the cross. It's a life that may include great material blessing, but it also might not. It might include great material deprivation. And Paul would say you can't tell whether or not you are faithful just by looking at your net worth. It doesn't work that way. Indeed, Paul himself was very faithful, but spent much of his life, much of his ministry... In prison, basically in poverty. Paul had what he called a thorn in his flesh that God refused to take away. God left him to suffer from this thorn in the flesh. Paul says in one of his letters, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer many trials. The prosperity gospel is a heresy. It is a twisting and distorting of the Bible's message. For Paul, there is no prosperity gospel. And so if the false teachers taught that godliness is a means of gain, Paul counters that by teaching in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says we should be content. We should be content with our position and our possessions because we see that God has assigned to us our lot in life. Whatever position you have in your family and at work and in the church and in society, God has ordained that for you. That's where God has stationed you to serve. And whatever kind of possessions possessions you have, whether great or small, those have been given to you by God himself. We actually saw this really last week in Philippians 4 when we looked at... Um, Paul's teaching on contentment there. We saw that Paul shows us a man who has God and nothing else has everything he needs. A man who has Christ and nothing else has everything he needs. And we learn contentment by resting in the adequacy and sufficiency of Christ. Christ alone makes us complete. Christ alone makes us content with who we are and what we have when we find our identity in Christ. We're strengthened for contentment. We can be content whether we're abased or whether we're abounding. But here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul shows us other aspects, other dimensions of contentment. Another way to, to learn contentment is by remembering that while Christ is forever, money and possessions are temporary. And so he says in verse 7, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. He's just echoing the words of Job in the book of Job in the Old Testament. When Job lost everything he had, Job said, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Paul's saying the same thing here. Paul needed to say this because many people in the ancient world, in many ancient religions, did not believe this. This truth was denied. 
And so, for example, we know that the pharaohs were buried with all of their treasures because the Egyptians believed that they would have access to those treasures in the afterlife. If they were buried with their treasure, they would get to take their treasure with them into the afterlife. But Paul says here that's false. As Paul says, we cannot take anything out of this world. And so he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we ought to be content. We ought to be, we ought to be able to live a contented life with the bare necessities. There are two ways to be content. Two ways to be content. One is to get what you want. The other is to be satisfied with what you have. But the first way doesn't work. You're never going to get what you want because as soon as you do get what you want, you want something else. And so what must you do to be content? You must learn to be satisfied with what you have. It's as simple as that. Even if all you have is food and clothing, be satisfied, be content with that. Uh, Warren Buffett, uh, certainly not a theologian, but a man who knows a thing or two about money. Warren Buffett once said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it is also more blessed to be able to do without than to have to have. When you just have to have, you cannot be satisfied. You cannot be happy. You have to learn to do without. And how can you learn to do without things in this world? Because you have Christ, you can. We spend so much time trying to get more that we can't enjoy what we already have. We end up treating life as one big Amazon wish list. We're always after something else. Always after the next big thing we think will make us happy. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12 that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man who sees his life as consisting in the abundance of his possessions really has no life at all. If he were to strip away all that he owns and his bank account and his house, there just wouldn't be anything left. His whole identity and mission in life is tied up with possessing and acquiring. And so you take away what he possesses, what he is acquiring, and there's no life left. There's nothing left. There's no more to his life. A preacher once said, the man with no money is poor. The man with nothing but money is even poor. Money does not define your life. Money cannot provide the good life. And that is why Paul and the rest of Scripture is so full of these warnings. That's why Paul right here piles up so many warnings towards those who desire to get rich. To desire riches is to lead yourself into temptation. We pray in the Lord's Prayer that God would not lead us into temptation, but then we do it ourselves. We lead ourselves into temptation if we desire to be rich. By desiring to be rich, we put a target on ourselves. We put a big bullseye on our backs for Satan to see and take aim at. Uh, We make ourselves vulnerable to temptation. If we are discontent with what we have, then we are going to be taken down spiritually by Satan because that discontentedness is the root of so many other sins. Satan himself was a fallen angel who was not contented with his position. He fell because he became discontent. He wanted more. We talked about this last week. Adam and Eve fell in temptation because they were discontent with what they had. They had everything in the world except for one tree. And they were not content. They wanted that one thing. 
And you will fall into temptation as well if you desire to be rich. It is a snare and a trap. It will destroy you. Indeed, that's what Paul says here. The covetous, that's just another way of describing those who desire to be rich. The covetous destroy themselves and plunge themselves into ruin. The desire to be rich is spiritual suicide because the desire to be rich drives out our desire for God. That's really what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6 when he says you cannot serve God and mammon. Serving mammon is the very definition of greed. Serving mammon is what people do when they desire to be rich. It's a form of covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. See, covetousness is unbelief. It's impatient, impatience. The covetous man says, I want what I want, and I want it now. Covetousness leads us to grumble against God. We say, I know better than God. I know what I should have. Maybe another God will serve me better. And so you turn to trust in man. And of course, even if you wouldn't say those things out loud, none of us would say, I'm going to put my trust in mammon rather than in God. All too often, actions can show that is what people believe. Out of the overflow of the heart, the wallet spins. The way you use your money reveals your true goals and priorities in life. Your heart and your money are attached. There's some kind of invisible string that attaches your heart to your money. And where your heart goes, where your money goes, your heart follows. Wherever you put your money, that's where your heart will be. Because in some way, your money becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of your very self, a part of your heart. And so where your money goes, your heart goes to that same destination. Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. And the thing is, serving mammon never works out. Serving mammon can lead to financial ruin in this life. Because when we serve mammon in this life, it leads us into unnecessary debt. That's one way to serve mammon, by piling up unnecessary debt. Serving mammon leads us to make foolish financial decisions as we try to get rich quick. Serving mammon, your desire for things, your desire for more and more stuff can lead you to mistreat people around you, which isolates you and cuts you off from community. You've made money and stuff more important than people, and so you get socially isolated. Serving mammon can lead to ruin in this life, but serving mammon especially leads us into ruin in the life to come. See, we are tempted to trust in money because we think money can buy happiness or because we think it can give us security. But the truth is, it doesn't do either one for us. It does not bring happiness or security. As Proverbs says, we read it this morning, our wealth, when we need it most, what happens? Our wealth sprouts wings and flies away. Wealth is fleeting. It's not solid or secure. It cannot guarantee Anything, And it certainly can't gain for us the things that are most important in life. The fact is, money has almost nothing to do with the things in life that are most important. Money cannot buy you the things in life that are most central to your happiness and your fulfillment. Serving mammon is futile. If you love money, money can't love you back. If you sin, money can't forgive you. You've got a guilty conscience. Money can't cleanse you. 
Money can't give you eternal life. You can't buy eternal life with money. And no, again, money cannot make you happy. Money is a wonderful tool. It is a terrible master. And that's really how Jesus wants us to see it. Don't let mammon be your master. Make it your tool. Don't serve mammon. Make mammon your servant. Money should never become more important than people, and it most certainly should never become more important than God. We should not trust in money for happiness or fulfillment. Augustine, the church father, put it well. He said, if you are the master of your money, you can do good with it. If money is the master, it can do evil with you. If money's the master, it can do all kinds of evil with you. But if you make money your servant, you can do all kinds of good with it. Think about the Israelites. With some of their gold, they made an idol, the golden calf. With other gold, they made the tabernacle, a house for God, a place of worship. They show us using money in evil, idolatrous ways and using it in good, worshipful ways. Don't make money your master. Make money your servant. Don't trust in money. Use money. See that God calls us all to contentment. But I want to say one more thing about this before we move on. It's important to understand not everyone thinks that contentment is a virtue. Uh, I think that free markets are generally biblical and are the best way to serve human economic flourishing. Because in a free market, we can all use our gifts to serve one another so that our economic transactions can be a win-win for both parties involved. The free market encourages innovation that serves others. That's how you succeed in a free market, by finding the best way to serve others. That's the genius of it. We all get to do what we do best in a way that serves the common good. But there are those who have twisted the free market. There is a kind of capitalism that says contentment is bad and greed is good. It's greed and covetousness that keeps the economy going. And so get greedy. Uh, Seek to acquire more and more. That's what will ultimately produce greater wealth. And that's simply false. That kind of philosophy has to be rejected. The philosophy that says I shop, therefore I am, or that says I am what I own or that makes greediness as a way of life into an economic good, that's simply false. That's a a twisting and distorting. That's an idolatry. That's a form of idolatry. But on the other end of the spectrum, Marx did not see contentment as a virtue either. Indeed, this was one of Marx's great objections to the Christian faith. Marx said religion is the opium of the people. And what he meant by that is basically religion, and particularly the Christian faith, tells the masses, it tells the the, the people to be content with their lot and to not worry too much about social injustice and oppression because they're going to have a happy afterlife. And so you don't worry too much about injustice in this world. Just be content. And Mark said, that's terrible. But I think Mark's got Paul wrong. I, I actually don't think that's what Paul means when he talks about contentment. Paul is not saying that we have to be content with injustice that would destroy our humanity. He's saying we should be content with our possessions, which is a very different kind of thing. He's not saying be content with injustice. You may have to be mistreated. You may have to endure injustice. But Paul's not saying we should be content with that. He's saying we should be content with the possessions God has given to us. Contentment does not mean that we acquiesce to oppression. 
or that we always accept the status quo. We saw this last week. Contentment does not mean living a static life where you cannot seek the, the, the betterment of yourself or of society. Contentment simply means you trust God to take care of you no matter what. And that kind of contentment is a simple and beautiful Christ-like way of life. Christ showed us contentment when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and he resisted Satan's temptation. He didn't need what Satan was offering. He was content without it. Paul then wraps up this section by uh, giving one of the most famous but also most often misquoted statements in all of Scripture. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now he does not say that money is the root of evil. He says the love of money is the root of evil. The problem is not money, as we're going to see in just a minute. The problem is the love of money, the idolatry of money. Nor does Paul say that all evils come from this love of money, only different kinds of evil. It's the root of all different kinds of evils that manifest themselves in the world. But those clarifications do not dilute uh, the great wickedness that is found in loving money. Loving money destroys. Loving money is destructive. It destroys marriages and friendships and businesses and churches. It starts wars. And yes, as Paul says here, it leads some even to abandon the faith altogether. Because again, those who love mammon cannot love God. It's one or the other. And so Paul gives this warning. He says to love money is to impale yourself. On a sharp object, it's to pierce yourself with a sharp object. It's self-destructive. Paul says to those who are tempted to pursue riches, don't love money, be content. Your love of money will destroy you. But then at the end of this chapter, Paul shifts to give instructions to the rich. And we see this in verses 17 through 19. And much of this is similar. It greatly overlaps with what we've already seen earlier in the chapter. But there are some some new things that are brought in here as well. Paul says, don't be prideful. The rich must beware of pride, of becoming haughty and arrogant, of looking down on those who don't have as much, of thinking I must be better because I have more. Paul here, I think, would point us back to the book of Deuteronomy where Moses preached to the Israelites and said, when you get into the land of promise and when you become wealthy, remember it is God who gives you the power to get wealth. And so don't forget God in your prosperity. Stay humble. You know, there's an old saying, adversity has slain her thousand, prosperity her ten thousand. Prosperity can actually be far more dangerous to your spiritual life than adversity. Because it is so easy to forget God and to forget our need for God when we have so much. We begin to feel self-sufficient. And so we don't pray as much. We don't turn to God as much. We don't trust God as deeply. Paul goes on, he says, don't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives all things richly for our enjoyment. Part of this is what we just saw. Don't trust mammon, trust God. But then he adds something new here. Recognize that God gives you everything richly for your enjoyment. And this picks up on a huge biblical theme that also needs to be emphasized. I think enjoyment really is the key term here. God really does want you to enjoy what He gives you. He wants you to enjoy whatever level of prosperity He gives you without any guilt. Because joy and guilt can't coexist. 
God wants you to enjoy the blessings He provides. Paul says here, take pleasure in what God provides. Give God thanks for all the good things in your life and enjoy them. Well, we read Proverbs 10.22 this morning. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and He adds no sorrow with it. For the godly man, riches are a blessing and a joy. Riches are the gift of God for him to enjoy. These good things God puts in our lives, He wants us to enjoy them. Paul has warned about loving money, but and there's a I can only say this in a very qualified sense. We're not supposed to love money. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to hate money. Money and what it can buy are all part of God's good creation given to us for us to enjoy. We're to enjoy what God gives us. Christian economics does not start with Genesis 3 and with the fall and with the misuse of creation. Christian economics starts with Genesis 1 and with the goodness of creation. God's abundant gift of the creation to us. God's bounty shared with us. And so Paul says, enjoy what God gives. Paul says to the rich, enjoy what God gives. The prosperity gospel is heretical. We've seen that. Uh, it's not, uh, it is not true that God wants us to always be healthy and wealthy. But just like every other heresy, the prosperity gospel takes something that's good and true and twists it and distorts it and misshapes it. What's good and true there that's been twisted and distorted? It is true that God made us for lives of abundance and prosperity. The kinds of lives, quite frankly, we will enjoy in the resurrection in the new creation. Where all the delights of this creation are ours to enjoy forever and ever. God made us for lives of abundance and prosperity. He made us to enjoy His gifts. He made the world for our enjoyment. Because, of course, all of these things point us to Him. All these gifts point us to Him as the giver. And so let me say this. Something like the American dream could only have grown up in a largely Christianized society. The American dream, there's something fundamentally good about it. The American dream in American history really goes back to George Washington. Uh, one of George Washington's favorite passages in the Bible was Micah 4.4. I say one of his favorite passages because he quoted it more than 50 times in his public writings and, and, and speaking. Micah 4.4 says this, Every man, this is a prophet foretelling the coming of God's kingdom. The prophet says this, Every man shall sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. The mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. George Washington loved this verse because of what it pointed to, the kind of life it pointed to, the kind of life he wanted for the country that he helped to found. The vine and the fig tree in this prophetic passage represent freedom and peace and property and prosperity. The American dream is the prophet's dream. A dream of people enjoying God's gifts, God's creaturely gifts in this world. A life of enjoying property and prosperity that God has bestowed upon us. Enjoying the gifts that God has given to us to steward and develop for His glory. The American dream is a good thing. Sure, we could point to all kinds of ways it's been corrupted. 
because we have not heeded Scripture's warnings about the dangers of wealth. But the core of it, the heart of it, comes right out of the Bible's teaching on creation and vocation and stewardship. We hear so much today about the dangers of wealth. You know, the words of Jesus, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. We hear so much about the dangers of wealth, and we need to. But we also need to be reminded of the fundamental goodness of wealth. That God gives us richly all things for us to enjoy. And so I want to say the so-called poverty gospel that says poverty is somehow good or better, is just as unbiblical as the prosperity gospel. It's just as much of a heresy. Oh yeah, to say that God always wants all of us wealthy and healthy, that's wrong. That is heretical. But it's also wrong to say that it's always better and more godly to be poor. That God really wants us to be poor, that if we're really righteous, we'll live in impoverished conditions. I mean, if that were really true, if wealth were only bad in that way, why would you give wealth to the poor? You'd just be making things worse for them. Why would you share something so dangerous with someone else? If wealth is bad, why give it to somebody else? You'd be hurting that person. No, instead, God actually commands His people to enjoy wealth, even to build wealth over the generations. Again, we read from Proverbs this morning. Proverbs says the righteous man stores up an inheritance for his children. God wants his people to build up transgenerational wealth. And indeed, the scriptures are full uh, of stories about faithful saints who were extremely wealthy and served God with their wealth and living as wealthy people. You've got Abraham and Isaac. You've got Job. You've got Nicodemus. You've got those addressed here in 1 Timothy. Ecclesiastes speaks at great length of enjoying God's gifts. The law of Moses required Israel to throw elaborate feasts, great big lavish parties several times a year. Extravagance and wealth were part of the lifestyle God called His people to. Extravagance and wealth in lifestyle is not always a sin the way some would have you believe. But then Paul goes further. There's more, of course, as you would expect. Paul does not want the rich to feel guilty. He wants them to feel joy. Paul does not want the rich to feel guilty. He wants them to feel gratitude. But now he goes beyond that. He doesn't want the rich to feel guilty for what they have. He wants them to feel responsible to those who do not have. And so he goes on, right after saying that the rich should enjoy all the things God has provided richly for their enjoyment, he goes on in verse 18, he says, let the rich do good, that the rich may be rich in good deeds, ready to give, willing to share. The rich need to be reminded of this because when you are rich, it is easy to forget the poor, to insulate yourself from their needs. Now this is what's interesting. Statistically, Surveys show in America that as wealth increases, giving decreases as a percentage of income. It's a little bit counterintuitive. Maybe you would think people who make more are willing to give more away. It's actually the opposite. People who make less give more away. Sometimes this is referred to as the Mississippi versus Massachusetts problem. People in Massachusetts make more money on average than people in Mississippi, but they on average give less of it away. 
And I've seen this dynamic play out many times just in my own life. I know of many poor Christians who are very faithful to tithe and even give over and above the tithe. And I know many Christians, many rich Christians who don't tithe. And this is why we need the warnings about wealth that we have in Scripture. There is something about money that is deceitful. That when it gets its hooks in you, it's really hard to get free. Somehow with money, the more you have, the harder it gets to give it away. There's something addictive about accumulating wealth. Money can be like a drug. We can get addicted to money so that the more you have, the more you crave. And the more you accumulate, the harder and harder it gets to give it away. But Paul says here, let the rich, in the midst of enjoying all that God has provided, don't let them forget the poor. Let them be rich in good deeds as well. We're called to give our money away, to practice sacrificial generosity. Yes, it is good to enjoy wealth. God commands that. But that's not all there is to it. See, as good as the American dream is, I just showed you that, as good as the American dream is, there's actually something better. I'll call it the kingdom of God dream. It's the, it's the kingdom of God dream. The kingdom of God dream includes using your money and possessions in sacrificial ways for kingdom purposes, specifically to care for the poor in God's name and to further the mission of the church, the advance of the gospel across the globe. The very kinds of things that we pray for and will this morning in our offertory prayer, after we collect the tithes and offerings of God's people, what kind of things do we pray for? That these gifts would support the work of the church and care for the poor and needy and promote the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I have no doubt that one day in heaven or in the resurrection, we will meet many people whose lives were changed because of money put in that offertory plate each week. It makes a difference. It's one of the ways that God gets things done in the world. God wants the rich to use some of their riches in sacrificial ways to care for the needs of others. And so Paul says to the rich, be ready to give and willing to share. The rich should be ready to give and willing to share. Now finally, look at how this passage ends in verse 19. As the rich share and give away riches, they store up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may lay hold of eternal life. See, the rich are tempted to become servants of mammon because they have so much of it. The best way for the rich to prove that they serve God and not mammon is to give mammon away. The best way to show you are not possessed by your possessions is to share them. The antidote to greed is generosity. And so Paul says here exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. When we share earthly currency with others, it gets exchanged. It gets turned into heavenly currency. A generous use of earthly treasure translates into heavenly treasure. As you give it away here on earth, it becomes something for you in heaven. And when it comes to earthly treasure and heavenly treasure, both are good, but heavenly treasure is better. Jesus tells us it's better because it's more secure. It's protected from moss and rust and thieves. You came into this world with no earthly treasure, and you will leave this world with no earthly treasure. 
But if you use the earthly treasure you have in between your birth and your death in generous ways, you will have a heavenly treasure waiting for you. It is great to be rich in this life. It's even better to be rich in the life to come. You can't take your riches with you, but you can't send them ahead. That's what you're doing when you share and when you give. Good deeds are a kind of currency exchange. Good deeds transform earthly currency into heavenly currency. And so Martin Luther was right when he said you really only get to keep what you give away. I started out this morning by saying all of us are rich by global standards and by historical standards. And so all of us are called in various ways to help those who are not rich, or at least those who have less than we do. But you might ask, how much? How much of my wealth should I enjoy, since that's lawful, and how much should I give away, since that's required too? Let me tell you, I cannot answer that question for you. You're just going to have to live with that tension. You're going to have to live in that tension between the goodness of the American dream and the greater goodness of the kingdom dream. You're going to have to live in that tension your whole life. That's just the tension of the Christian life. Enjoy wealth and be generous with your wealth. Enjoyment of wealth and generosity with wealth will always be intention in the Christian life. And there's nothing I can do or any other pastor or elder could do to make that tension go away. Oh, I can give you guidelines. I could remind you that Scripture commands you to tithe to the church and then to give over and above uh, that tithe offerings. I can give you warnings the way C.S. Lewis did. Lewis uh, put it this way. He said, wealth knits a man to the world such that he feels he is finding his place in the world when really it is the world finding its place in him. I can give you those kind of warnings about worldliness, about the dangers of wealth. I can remind you of the cross. Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sakes in order to enrich us. We were poor. Jesus gave us all his riches. He was ready to give, willing to share. I can remind you of all of these truths, but I cannot solve the riddle for you. You've got to do that for yourself before God. But really, you know, I I find this interesting. Everything Scripture says about money is full of tension and paradox. And the only way to do away with that tension or paradox is to go to one extreme and cut certain parts of the Bible out. You go to one extreme or the other and you just marginalize other teachings in Scripture. What that tells you, the complexity of this issue tells you it is a wisdom issue. And that's why the wisdom literature is so full of teaching about money. Just read through Proverbs and what do you find? You find rich people can be good or bad and poor people can be good or bad. We're supposed to give to our kids an inheritance, but we're also supposed to teach them the value of work. You should save, but without hoarding. You should enjoy without idolizing. God gives you wealth to enjoy, but also to do good with. And how much of your wealth you allocate for each of those is a question you have to answer before God. There are all kinds of tensions Scripture calls us to embrace when it comes to money. And there's no formula to resolve that tension. It's a tension God wants each of us to wrestle with. Let's pray that we would do so faithfully. Let's pray to God. Father, help us to see that you are not against money. 
but against the idolatry of money. And so help us to enjoy wealth without worshiping it. Help us to dethrone mammon in our lives by converting earthly wealth to heavenly currency through good deeds, through sharing what we have. May we kill money love so we can love you and love people with our money. May money not be our master. May it be our servant. May we remember that you own everything and we are merely stewards. May our wallets be made holy, O Lord, as well as the rest of our lives. And may we remember that while gains in wealth are good, gains in godliness are even better. This we pray in Jesus' name, giving him thanks and praise, giving you thanks and praise through him. Amen.